0: Hi, this is Joseph Yanizello, guitar builder, and you're listening to Talking Blues.
1: So Joseph, I get the impression your dad built a lot of things. Mm -hmm. He was a builder of sorts. Yeah. Does that have direct impact on what you do today? Is that the reason?
0: Uh, I wouldn't have thought so earlier on, but definitely now I, I think that's the case. He had a big influence on myself and my brother. Uh, my brother's a contractor uh, of the highest order. He's a totally talented guy. In fact, he's my go-to if I had a wiring problem or a plumbing problem. <laughs> and my father, um, from an early age, we lived, uh, well, I was born at Spadina College basically. And uh, I remember as a young boy, my father was always making stuff in the basement, he'd be doing this and that with wood and metal. Um, he, at that time, he was uh, he was a metal worker. He had a sheet metal shop at Harvard and Robert Street. We lived on Robert Street at Spadina and College. My grandmother lived uh, two doors down from us. There were, primarily that neighborhood was Italian, pretty much half Italian, half Jewish in the 50s. And I have a lot of fond memories of that neighborhood going to Kensington Market, uh, with my family, with my grandmother, with my aunt, um, yeah, it was a wonderful time. And my father's sheet metal shop was really five minutes up the road, so I'd get on my tricycle and I could go up as far as Harvard or go down as far as college, on my tricycle. Like nowhere else. So I'd go up to Harvard and go in the laneway where my dad's sheet metal shop was and uh, watch him working. And he was, uh, you know, there was no wood involved in that, but he was making stuff, and um, he did through my whole life and. When I got out of art college, I'd already been woodworking because of my father. I started with him summers as a teenage boy working on job sites. He was a custom house builder for quite a while, too. My father did a lot of different things. He was a car mechanic at one point, working on British cars for my uncle. Um, He was a woodworker. He built cabinets. He did a lot of different things. So it really kind of, I don't know, instilled in me a sense of, ability to do things without worrying about like just kind of dive in and that's what my father did he, he dove into anything he did like that he was very inspiring without actually sitting down and talking to me about how to do this or that I just kind of watched him it was more by osmosis so from early on i i kind of had an idea of of how things went together and how to do things which paid off down the road now for example you know all of the stuff that I saw my father do I'd I've been using that throughout you know, my career as a guitar builder and a cabinet maker as well.
1: Which is what you went into first, is it not? Is it oh, more cabinet building?
0: Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, I worked with my dad on houses and, you know, I hung out and did. I wasn't really concerned about a career at that point. Um, but it was definitely there. That stuff was something I was interested in. So I went to uh, Europe for a year. I'd, I actually got uh, accepted at OCA um, and decided not to go. I went to Europe with a friend or two. We were there for a year, which was a big time for me. I was about 20 years old. So this is around 1970. No, I would have been 18. 1970, I was 18. And um, that trip to Europe made a huge impression on me. Just everything about it, the food, the architecture, the lifestyles, um, just everything that was there was important to me down the road and made a big impression on me. So when I got back to Canada, my intention was to get a job, any job, to get enough money to go back to Europe and see all of this over again and, you know, and experience it with more intensity. Um, but I got into working and one thing led to another and uh, I got accepted at Sheridan Art College, not for woodworking, for fine art. And um, after my three years there, I was painting and screen printing and I was doing some wooden sculptures. It was interesting because sometimes an instructor would come up to me. I was, you know, I'd be building something out of wood, a sculpture, and they'd say, Hey, uh, can you make a coffee table? And um, said, sure, yeah. So I make a coffee table, deliver it, get paid in money. <laughs> so a light bulb went on. It was kind of a tangible way to, to have fun and make money doing it. So woodworking was more the thing than than art. When I got out of art college, I wasn't actually that interested in painting or screen printing. I was more interested in woodworking. It was kind of a strange thing, so I started. Um, how, did I, how did it go? It's a long time ago now. I ended up with a cabinet job that was not great. It was a lot of arborite for like uh, that production shop doing store fixtures, but I was making a living at it, and um, and that kind of gave me a lot of skill with small tools like routers and hand planes and files, which I've used now like crazy, like making all my hardware with. You know, all the stuff that I used then to, to make uh, uh, cabinet cabinets out of barbara in Formica. Um, I'm
1: trying to think <laughs> what happened. I, I wonder, um, when you went to art school, I, I know you said that that wasn't going to lead directly into your profession, but what, what did you hope to accomplish at art school?
0: Well, I, I was always kind of interested in drawing
1: and painting. I did that a lot when I was a
0: kid, just, you know, sketching stuff. So it just led to that because my father was actually a bit of a painter too, so that may have influenced me as well. He went to Central Tech on Harvard. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It just I, it was just the thing I wanted to do at the time. You know, I had no master plan at all, really. When I got back from Europe, it was just, you know, I wanted to go back there, and then I got into art college and then into woodworking. So after my first cabinet job, I, I was sort of intrigued with the whole idea of making furniture that was kind of the thing for me eventually I got into a cabinet shop that was um, really a good one like a small shop and um, I got hired because I could read blueprints basically so started in with that custom cabinet making uh, furniture uh, for store fixtures for restaurants private Mm -hmm. homes this uh this person I worked for had a lot of high-end clientele he was an artist himself and um so he is fairly connected. He and his wife, who was a photographer, they, they had a lot of connections, which served his woodworking business. So I became um, kind of the lead hand there. And we ended up doing all sorts of, for, for about four years, all we did was work for the Catholic Church, did a lot of um, carvings, a lot of uh, fixtures for the altar, like bishop's chairs, all sorts of big deal furniture, like hard stuff to make, carving carved a lot of Corinthian capitals and, uh, and stuff like that. And it was fascinating. I learned so much at that job. Did you play the guitar? Yeah. Well, that's something I haven't even talked about yet. When I was uh, 15 or 16, I started playing the guitar. And, um, that was a whole other fascinating thing too, was playing a musical instrument. I mean, it was wide open for me. I was so interested in so many things. It was kind of hard in a way to focus. And I felt like I didn't really have to because it was so much to do all the time. I was young. I had zero responsibility other than, you know, enjoying myself and, and, uh, so, um, the guitar, yeah, came into play about about 15 or 16. And, um, you know, the, the bands of the day were, were influential, like the Beatles, the Yardbirds, uh, all of that stuff from the sixties into the seventies was huge for me. And, um, I played finger style. I learned how to do that, like Travis picking and, uh, and so on. And that just led to, to more playing and playing with friends. Uh, I got into bluegrass in the 70s. Uh, not that I was a bluegrass player per se, but I really liked the instrumentation, especially the dobro. So I eventually bought a dobro for a couple hundred bucks, like a dobro dobro from the 70s, and um, learned how to play that a little, you know, a little bit. I wasn't great at it, but I was intrigued with the instrument itself. And the woodworking thing, the playing thing. So eventually I got to a point where it was around 1979 when I decided I could maybe build a guitar. And that's kind of how it went from, from that point. Um, I had enough skill to do it. Uh, I didn't have any teachers. I wasn't aligned with any of the, the builders that I now know, like uh, Linda and Greg, Dave Wren, Tony Duggan Smith. They're all friends and um, they're all incredibly talented. And of course, we're under the. Um, the wing of Jean Laraville, which I didn't have any of that. Um, I, I'm self-taught, pretty much everything I've done. And um, so the guitars, because I could woodwork, the guitar building part wasn't too difficult for me. I had a pretty good idea how to do it. Um, I bought Irving Sloan's book.
1: What was the first guitar you built?
0: first bu- uh, guitar I built was a flat top. And um, I, I wasn't going by a pattern. I just kind of drew a shape made the mold. I bought Irving Sloan's book, like a lot of people my age did. And um, that was kind of my my learning tool was that very thing. I didn't attend to any classes or anything. So whatever I could pick up was through that book and a couple of other publications. There wasn't much out there pre-internet. It was hard to get information. So unless you worked in a music store, or you apprenticed under another builder, it was kind of difficult to do. But I persevered. And um, after that first guitar, um, I thought, I'll build another. The second guitar I built was uh, a 16 inch arch top. I just kind of. <laughs> the last chapter of that book, Irving Sloan's book, was about Jimmy De Guisto. And uh, it just, it killed me. I couldn't believe somebody could make something like that. So I had to give it a try. So I bought wood and, um, and carved this top and back and glued it to the rims. And away I went. Yeah, I had this arch top. And it was fairly successful. But I, I'd done that. So then after that point, um, I started making electric guitars. So every time I'd build a guitar, I'd think about something else I want to try based on often the musicians I was listening to. Like I said, the bluegrass thing, um, was pretty important to me. And after I I had that Dobro, I sold it. And a few friends, um, asked if I could play on a, you know, a demo or something Dobro and I didn't have one because I sold it. So I ended up making one. I made two at once. And, uh, and they both sold to friends of mine. And that was the start of the dobro thing for me. And then it just led to so many other things. Um,
1: okay, so if we go back to that first guitar. Yeah. And you said it, it came somewhat easy to you. I mean, how good was that first guitar that you built?
0: Oh, it weighed a ton. It was crappy, but the woodwork <laughs> <part> was good. <laughs> I still have it upstairs, actually. It's kind of a funny thing. My, my daughter will end up with it at some point. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It was okay. It's, it's a, it's a guitar. It's an average sounding guitar. It's not spectacular, but it's not crappy. either. I mean, it's, it works as a guitar and it's still hanging in there.
1: (laughs) Okay. So what amazes me about you, and, and I don't know if it's the same with all luthiers, but obviously you started off with a flat top, then very quickly you went to an electric guitar. Then you, you've done resonators, you've done mandolins, you've done Mm -hmm. tons of different instruments. Um, i i don't know is that an easy thing like i i, I just picture people building guitars and thinking i got to get better at this and kind of doing it over and over and over again to get better at it mm-hmm. but you seem to move on and i know you you keep coming back and whatever but you've built a lot of different instruments yeah is it, I, I, obviously building an electric guitar is quite different from building an acoustic guitar Yes. Which would be different from building a mandolin. Yes. Or am I wrong in that?
0: No, no. They're all related, obviously. Anything with strings and frets especially uh, applies to this kind of knowledge and building. Um, The acoustic guitar thing for me was, you know, I'm I'm a real fan of vintage Martins and Gibsons especially. I love all that stuff. Um, And I'm fascinated with it. So when I make a flat top now, it's really more, I'm not trying to, you know, burn any... I'm not going for new territory. I'm just trying to make something that's that sounds really good. So I make a double O, I make an L double zero, uh, I make an OM style guitar. All of these things, I'm, I'm really just trying to do what those guys did and, and do it my way and do it as good as I can. So I don't necessarily have... Um, I probably have a really good overall skill level with building an instrument like an electric. Um, I don't even know how to describe this. It's, it's, you've asked me this question. I'm trying to think of, of why I do this. Um, <laughs> I think part of, part of the thing for me is more about the kind of music I listen to. So when I discovered like bluegrass musicians and uh, really good folk musicians, I was a huge Leo Kottke fan and, and people like that, that played in that style. This is going way back to the seventies. And that made a big impression of, on me. I didn't, Want to go out and build you know what leo cocky was playing necessarily but all of those sounds i was hearing were important to me and then when i discovered people like Ray cooter and david lindley those guys really kind of turned me on to what was possible doing um using those kind of instruments that they were using for the kind of music they were playing you know integrating different kinds of it, in- especially david lindley I mean, he he plays jazz, he plays uh, you know, oud, he plays all sorts of different instruments and incorporates them into his repertoire um, and i find that really fascinating so i think that's one of the reasons i build a lot of different things because if i hear something on a record or in a live concert setting out oh, wow that thing's amazing and i'd like to try a version of that you know my own thing so putting my stamp on those instruments is what i've tried to do really i make electric guitars electric baritone guitars electric mandolin family which is where kevin comes in Actually, he. Um, He's been pretty inspirational for me. He'll come up with an idea and ask me if I can do it. Um, when I did the NAM show, my first guitar show was 1995. I went to Nashville and, um, I wanted to try it on, you know, this was, I was still building furniture, but I, I wanted to make a move into building instruments because I'd made my first guitar in 1979. So quite a bit of time had elapsed as a cabinet maker. I had my own business at this time. And, um, I was still building guitars, like I'd made maybe five, six, seven guitars a year, uh, but it wasn't full time. I was still providing, you know, a living with the cabinet making, which was a good living actually, cabinet making can be great. So once I, I did the NAMM show, I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to make more instruments and see if I can actually push this through to, to making a living at it. I didn't dive into the deep end of the pool. I did it fairly slowly. It was really an organic process for me, I'd, Going from being a cabinet maker, furniture designer, into building guitars full time.
1: At that point, you're, you've done, you've been making guitars for almost twenty years. Yes, yeah, correct. Yep. Um, did you know how good you were at that point? Well, well, how good were you at 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 the point where you decided I'm going to do this and make it full time?
0: Yeah, I, I thought my instruments were were good. They were actually they. Um, so what I've done really is just continue to do what I was doing and make improvements aesthetic improvements and just add things um, different types of hardware when i first designed my electric guitar was 1982 that's how long ago the same shape i'm using today i built and designed back in 1982 and back then there wasn't a lot of hardware available like you couldn't get a lot of different pickups there were Demarzios and you know old fender and whatever you could get to put in an instrument so i think i used humbuckers in the first one and i bought strat bridge and screwed that on so really I was using hardware on this original shape that I still use. So eventually it got to a point where, in fact, I think it was um, it was Rob Pilch. I don't know if, do you know Rob? Guitar player? Yeah. I do. Great musician. And um, a long time ago, he asked, uh, he brought his Harmony Stratotone into my shop and said, hey, can you make one of your guitars, but more like this? So I said, sure. So I made a, a hollow mahogany guitar with a spruce top wooden bridge more like kind of an archtop format tailpiece the whole thing and um and that was the start of it really for for making hardware and i thought wow making hardware out of metal is fun you know i that was the first tailpiece i made for for Bob, and because i had all this experience with arborite and for mike and hand files it wasn't a hard thing so i'd draw something out and figure out how to make it and i, I have no metalworking tools it's all like woodworking stuff so the metal i use is all non-ferrous like brass, uh, copper, aluminum, are what I can manipulate using my woodworking tools because carbide cutters will cut that stuff quite easily. So that's what I've been doing ever since. Making all of this hardware has really changed the game for me. So now I can offer all sorts of different pickup configurations, um, bridges, tailpieces. pieces. Uh, I have these big speed vibratos that I totally modify. So yeah, it's it's sort of, and I'm still going there with it. I make all the knobs and all sorts of things. It's, it's so much fun for me. So that one original design I came up with in 1982 has had so many iterations and continues to. So every one is pretty much a one of a kind. I mean, I get repeats now uh, of something because I've built so many electric instruments, especially people can kind of pick details and then assemble what they want from me. So that's how it's, it's been now for years. So my guitars, I think, were always of a good quality, but they were fairly basic at the start. But now I've um, I've upped my game by just adding all sorts of details, like hardware especially.
1: How much of, of your being a musician, and I'm not sure at lo- what level a musician you are, but how much does that play into the guitars that you make?
0: Um, I was a reasonably good guitar player earlier on. I mean, my hands have failed me. I can still play a bit, but um, it's a lot harder to play now. I lost a finger um, about 10 years ago when I moved out this, where I am now. Uh, I cut one of my fingers off on a jointer and a little bit of my thumb. So it made it hard to finger pick. And even holding a pick is difficult. I can still do it somewhat, but that's less important to me. But back then, yeah, I could could play well enough to determine um, if a guitar I was playing was a good one or not, including ones I made. So... It would be difficult, I think, for me to, to make an instrument without having the ability to play it. I, I, I'm always fascinated when people can do that. They don't play too much, but they can still make these incredible instruments. Leo Fender is a good example of that. But he had a lot of people around him that advised him as well, I think. But as an individual luthier, um, yeah, it would be difficult. It would be like somebody asking me to make a violin. I could make a violin, but I wouldn't have any idea if it was a good one or a bad one or exceptional i really wouldn't know i don't have the criteria to judge that you know the neck shape everything about it is foreign to me i know what it looks like and it's made out of wood and i could definitely make one but no idea but the guitars i have a really good idea so when someone asks for very specific neck shapes and uh, dimensions like that i I know pretty much what they're asking for just by talking with them so dealing with a customer now is really important Uh, a lot of people have input into what they get from me you know, based on a lot of things that they see that I've done, we assemble something. But then when you get down to the mechanics of it and holding it and playing it and how it feels in your hand, that's really the fun part, I think, for me and for the customer, because there's a lot of back and forth uh, on specs. And that's really an important thing. Sometimes people go make what you want, which is good, too, because then I can make what I want within, you know, what they direct me to. But sometimes there's a list that's, half a mile long of specs and things to pay attention to how far the strings are from the end of the fingerboard, and, um, the shape of the neck, especially, and things like that are, are a big deal to a lot of players. And I get that. I understand because I play. So I know that they want something very specific and it's a bit of a nail biter because you're hoping when you deliver this thing, they open the case and take it out and try it, that it's going to be what they want. That's always a bit frightening, but exhilarating too. It's exciting for both parties. I think
1: So, if we go back to that guy who decided that he's going to go at guitar building full-time back in the late nineties, tell me about what what you're hoping to accomplish with that. Like, did you, did you have goals that said either I want to make this kind of money or I want to make this many instruments or like, what goals did you have for yourself when you decided to go out on your own and build guitars?
0: Well, I could see that I could make a living at it. Um, that was pretty obvious because I'd sold, I'd already made quite a few instruments at that point. Um, so I knew it was doable and I had all the woodworking tools because I had my own business. I had a, a pretty big cabinet shop. I sold all the the larger machinery and, and downsized the machinery and uh, away I went. I mean, I just, I had everything there already to do this. So once again, no big plan financially or anything. I just, started making guitars and selling them. And before the internet, you know, I'd, I'd get eight by 10 glossies printed of my instruments and do a big mailer, you know, sit there with a letter, cover letter and send them out to, to different musicians. Sometimes I'd hear back sometimes not, a, you know, crickets. Um, and it just went that way. And, and really people like Kevin have been instrumental for me, so to speak. He, he's been really great. He, he's, probably responsible for me selling a lot of instruments at this point because people see Kevin play and they get all excited because he's a wild man and he's so talented and incredibly creative with what he does with anything. Um, He's got, I guess, nine or ten of my instruments at this point. And um, it's always fun working with someone like Kevin. And there's other musicians too that I've dealt with. Don Rook's another one. Don's a great musician. He has the very first dobro I ever made and I've made him three or four instruments since then as well
1: how important is that though so like you decide that you're going to go out on your own and obviously by this time you have a bit of a following but do you think okay i need a name player to be playing my instrument like does that come into play or do you not think that way you just think if i make quality instruments they will come as opposed to if i get somebody like kevin bright to play then others people will recognize that and then well, that,
0: that sure that that definitely happened with Kevin and a few other people. I, I through Kevin, I got to make a um, guitar for Bill Frizzell a long time ago, about 20 years ago now. In fact, it happened um, because Kevin had a gig with Bill at the Guelph Jazz Fest. And um, I remember Kevin calling me at the shop and he said, Joe, do you have an electric guitar? Because he had a mandolin, electric mando, a resonator guitar, probably a couple of other things I built and um but not an electric guitar so he phoned me up and asked if i had one available and i just happened to have one on the bench um and i phoned the customer and said hey can i loan this to kevin to show to bill Frizel? and the customer was yeah he was a big bill Frizzell fan so he said yeah sure so kevin uh phoned me from his place the next day and i hear this guitar wailing in the background and kevin said hey joe that's um that's Bill. He's playing your guitar. He really likes. He wants to meet you, so I got to meet Bill at the after the gig. Had a word with him, and he said, um, "Could you make me a guitar like like this one?" So I, I made it for him. But that was about a day before 9-11. so wow. everything stopped. I didn't hear from Bill for oh about two months, I guess. And uh, he did. I thought nothing of it. I thought, okay, maybe he'll call me, maybe he won't. He did call me back, and we talked about building a guitar. Delivered it to him. He played it a fair bit. Uh, it's on a bunch of recordings. Um, he plays a lot of different instruments. It's certainly not his main instrument. But that was great too. So a lot of people have ordered what he had for me at that point. It's a very similar thing. And I still make them like that too with the scripts top.
1: So, I'm curious how you, how you first got together with Kevin, or how did Kevin find you, or how did you find Kevin?
0: Kevin, I remember seeing the Bright Brothers at a bar in Toronto, uh, I went with a friend of mine, and um, Chris Bennett, actually, you might know Chris, and uh, Chris said, you should see this guy, I, I didn't know who Kevin was, so he introduced me to Kevin, and, um, you know, we talked about guitars, and he knew I'd built guitars at that point, I'd mentioned that, and... Uh, he said, hey, do you do any repairs? I said, sure, yeah. So he brought over something. I think it was a resonator guitar. And uh, I worked on it. And one thing led to another. And um, I can't even remember. The, I think the first guitar I made for Kevin was actually a resonator, one of my round uh, neck Dobro style resonators. And um, that just led to more repairs. And when I went to the NAMM show in 95, um, I took three resonator guitars, a couple of electrics, and I made a, an electric mandolin for that show specifically, because I wanted to take something different. So I'd never made an electric mandolin before, but so I went to Kinko's and scaled down my electric guitar into the size of a mandolin. I did that for all of them. So the mandolin, mandola, mandocello, octave mandolin, and guitar body are all the same shape, just different sizes. Thank God for Kinko's. And um, so I made the mandolin, took it to the show, and Kevin saw it when I, I came back. And, uh, and showed it to him, and um, he ordered one. So then I made one for him, and then one day he phoned and said, hey, could you uh, could you make a mandola? And I said, yeah, sure. So, you know, just expanded it and turned it into a mandola, tuned a different way and fits, and uh, that's how it went with Kevin. Um, I probably – and the other one that was important that, that he wanted for me was this thing I call a cupcake. So he um, – he was traveling a lot with Cassandra Wilson at the time, and he uh, needed something that he could put in the overhead compartment of the airplane. Uh, he was taking his uh, Rick Rickenbacker Bakelite from the thirties to play slide guitar. In, and he wanted something like a mandolin to fit in the case with it, or he had his Mando at that point too. So he said, can you make a little electric guitar that would be sort of this size? And I said, yeah. So I designed that up and built that for him and he took it on tour. And um, then I started to get orders for those, you know, I, I put them on social media and and people responded and hey hey can you make me one in red or whatever you know? so that's kind of how it's gone so because of Kevin I probably made about three or four different instruments that I maybe wouldn't have made without him so he's been fairly inspirational that way for me too so it's been really good
1: so you know we're at the beginning of the year tenth um, of January and so do you have a plan like I don't know how many you make and how long it takes to make different instruments but I presume you know that. How far out do you plan out? How many instruments are are on order for you?
0: Well, I've got a couple of years in front of me now, and I have had for a while. So I've had to close my building list because I only make maybe between 14 and 17 instruments a year, uh, depending on what they are. In fact, right now I'm working on um, a 16-inch archtop for a customer and an OM for another customer in the West Coast. So after those, I've got a bunch of electrics. I mean, it's all over the map. I have. I just got an order for a resonator guitar, which I'll be making in a couple of years. I don't make too many resos now. Originally, uh, I, that's all I made uh, when I built those first two square neck resonator guitars. I think I just made resonator guitars for about three years straight. That was it. Everybody wanted to resume with guitars. It was the weirdest thing. So I like making them. I still do. So every once in a while, I get an order. What's interesting about my situation is because I make so many different things, it really is a, it, it's exciting all the time. Because if I haven't made something for a year and a half, and I get an order for one, then I have to kind of dig through my notes and remember everything. So I have to kind of retrain myself. It kind of keeps me sharp in a way, if you will. So there's no just resting on the laurels of, using this jig building this planing something with my eyes closed there's none of that i have to kind of pay attention well everybody does anyway but i really have to pay attention because it's like i haven't made this thing for a couple of years I, I should i should figure out how to do it again and then i, I kind of train myself and that's how it goes even with the arch top too i'm looking at my notes as i speak i mean I, I know how to do it but i want to nail it so i have to be really careful about you know the procedure and there's always improvements to make, which you want to do with every instrument as well. Is it's a learning curve. I think one of my favorite uh, quotes is I think someone asked Pablo Casals why he still practices. You know, he's in his nineties. He said, "You've heard this, I'm sure." He said, um, "Well, I think I'm, I'm I'm finally making some progress, or something to that effect." So the whole idea being, it's a learning you know process all the way up until you stop doing it. And I'm still learning. I still learn things about what I'm doing. And uh, I'm a hand builder in every way, too. I I don't, if I was a younger guy, I'd probably go the CNC route. I haven't done that at all. Uh, Everything I make, I make with these hands. I just, all of it. Um, And that machinery allows you to put things out quicker and probably with more consistency. But the inconsistency of building doesn't bother me at all because every instrument has a personality just like we all do. So every time I make an instrument, it's its own thing. It's, you know, one of my kids out there and it's not like it's brother or sister. So um, I'm fine with that. In fact, I embrace that. And I think people come to me for that reason too. Uh, You know, I don't do production at all. Everything I make is truly handmade. So there's, um, yeah, that's exciting for people because they can get something from me that they wouldn't get from someone else.
1: Was, was there ever thought when you first began that if it was successful, you wanted to grow big, or did you always think I needed to be a custom thing that my hands are building every single one?
0: Yeah, you know, um, it's funny because with the furniture, I was more production oriented because you just if you're doing store fixtures, sometimes you have to make 10, 10 cabinets that are pretty much identical, so you set up jigs and fixtures to make that feasible and doable within a time frame. It's a lot different for me with the in fact, I think I kind of ran away from that into the guitars and wanted to slow it down a bit and enjoy it more by doing it the way I've been doing it versus production. Production's great, there's no doubt about it. And I'm kind of fascinated with, you know, any kind of production like Leo Fender's thing, Henry Ford's thing, that that whole idea of mass producing something is is valuable. You're you're doing it efficiently and with less waste perhaps and no spinning your wheels you're just doing this and it moves forward all the time and I move forward with, with the guitars the way I build them but it's it's radically different from how I would do furniture for example so I really like the idea of making guitars by hand there's a lot of people doing them with machines and so on and that's fine too that's all great but for me personally this is what I want to do and um, that's how it goes
1: so I wonder because I'm not a player Mm-hmm. So I don't know the, I know that people who, guitar players love their guitars. I know that many have multiple guitars yeah. and many can have, cannot have enough guitars. But if I was a player, um, why do I choose your guitar versus a Fender or a Gibson or a Larrave or whatever? Do you Would you be able to answer that? Yeah, you know, part of
0: establishing a brand, which I think I have. Finally, after all these years of, of doing this and, and, you know, do it within the same body shape and the headstock shape and my logo, it's all identifiable. And um, I, I purposely didn't want to do what Fender or Gibson did. So when I started designing an electric guitar in 1982, I remember coming up with a body shape that I liked. It took me a while to do that. And I did it. I drew it up by hand and had the French curves and everything out. And I finally got a shape that I really liked. And part of it was because of what I wanted to play myself. So I designed that electric guitar for me. And um, I wanted to stay away from the Fender Gibson thing. So even the pickups that I chose to use back then, post that first couple of guitars when I used humbucking pickups and whatever I could get, um, I kind of clued into the fact that harmony guitars and K guitars were really cool. And this is back in the early 80s. Um, so I was actively seeking out Darmond pickups. So I'd phone up friends and, hey, do you have a pair of these? And sure, I got a pair of those. I'll, you know, I'll trade you for this or the 50 bucks or something. So I'd get a pair of these pickups and use them on one of my electric instruments. And uh, that continued for a couple of years. And back then I wasn't making a lot of guitars, so it wasn't really critical. I wasn't, you know, scouring the country for Darmonds, But I found enough of them. And uh, it got to a point, though, where it was getting difficult to find them. So when I did the NAM show in 95, I wanted to take something that was completely mine. So I I had a Diarmid pickup, and I designed a pickup cover to fit that. That was my pickup cover. Uh, and that worked out really well. When I got back from the NAM show, um, I decided to go this route of having my own pickup. So I contacted Lindy Fralem, and uh, fortunately, Lindy was able to make what I wanted. And back then, he was a smaller company, so... He probably wound all that stuff himself originally. So I asked him if he could make like a late 50s, early 60s style you know, kind of gold foil. And uh, he said, yeah, I love those pickups. So he was making them by hand. Manila paper um, bobbins, hand-wound by him. And I'd get a box of these things that I'd make covers for. And I'm still doing that. I probably made, I don't know, 400, 500 pickup covers, maybe more, by hand at this point. So I have this Way to make them out of brass. I fold the brass and I solder in solid ends, cut them back on the table saw, file the hell out of them, round the ends over, drill the holes, polish them, send them to a chrome plater and get a box back of these shiny little jewels. And then I pack Lindy's pickups into these things. So those pickups Lindy makes, he still makes for me after all these years. It's been like 27 years now he's been making them. And um, he's still into doing it. So it's great. We have a relationship now, which is, is really cool. So that was that was a big deal. So that was the start of me having something totally my own that wasn't Fender or Gibson. So that style of pickup fits really nicely in between a Fender single coil and a a big humbucking pickup that Gibson would offer. So the sound was somewhere in between, and it covered a lot of territory as far as what it did. Um, You could make it darker. You could make it sound brighter. it's hard to make a Fender pickup sound really dark unless you've got it affected to death and turn you know have your amps set a certain way. So these things naturally have a great lively sound that I really like, and they're fat single coils, so they they cover more of the bottom end than a Fender does, but not as much. You know, they're even if they're darker, they're not like a Fender. But you can you can make it do a lot of different things in between a Fender and a Gibson pickup. Um, And there's a lot of people now making those. There's there's so many great pickup makers out there. So for me as a a custom builder, and many other people use these guys too, um, Mojo Pickups in England, um, Lawler Pickups, Curtis Novak, all of these companies, and there's tons of them. um, They offer all sorts of things, repro pickups from the 50s and 60s. Everything is being made now, Uh, so everything's available. But I still use my my Fralin pickups and the original pickup cover because I get asked for those at least 60 or 70% of the time because they sound a certain way and people like them. So, yeah, I kind of have a brand now that fits in somewhere with all the other guitar builders in this world. So when someone comes to me, it's because they heard my my guitars, they know what they sound like, they know I do custom work. So it kind of all works now for people coming to me to get something. There's a lot of options um, that I offer that, that are usable.
1: What makes the sound of your guitars? Um, How much of it is the material that you use, the pickups that you use, the amp that you you use, or just the way the person plays? Like what, if you can break it down, how does that break down?
0: Well, um, when I first uh, made my electric guitar in 82, it was a solid body. So really I was kind of doing really what Fender and Gibson were doing, just a different shape. But around uh, 1995, when I redesigned Within that format that I have the shape, I decided to make them hollow, which was a big step actually, because my guitars weigh five or six pounds. Like a Les Paul weighs eight or nine pounds. Fenders can be light. But um, it just so for my instruments with those pickups, basically it's the single coil pickup screwed down directly onto the top of the hollow body. So that creates a certain type of lively sound that has the notes have personality, I think. And I think a lot of people recognize that and, and like that about my instruments. So that's what they come to me for, I think, mostly. So is
1: it the sound because of the hollow body or the the weight of the guitar? It's
0: both. It's uh, the sound and the weight. When you pick up a really old Martin that weighs like, I don't know, three pounds, three and a half pounds, you can feel the whole thing vibrate. And I think that's one of the secrets to an acoustic guitar is, is how it vibrates and how lively it is, how it speaks. It The voice just comes right off the top it's fantastic uh heavier guitars are great on stage with a pickup because there's less feedback but if you're if you're just playing a solo thing and you want to feel the instrument i think my instruments definitely have a certain feel not an acoustic guitar feel but somewhere in between like you can actually feel the thing vibrate even when it's unplugged and you play it it sounds a certain way it's not a plank of wood with strings on it's more than that so i've just continued that tradition. When I first did that in 1995, I have continued to do that and expanded on it. So all of my electric instruments are hollow. Pretty much all of them except uh, this, you know, Kevin Stella Belistrella. From that, I, I designed a series called the Milano Series, which are, I made 10 instruments, pretty much all. I've got one more to make, which I'm going to take to a show in the States this year. But um, all of those are now sold, built, or in process. Uh, and that all came from that Stella Bellistrata, and that's really one of the only instruments I made that's uh, a solid body, but I made it thinner to take the weight down. I just wanted to do something different for that series, so really that series based on Kevin's Stella Bellistrata is is a departure for me. Um, it's interesting in that aesthetically it's more like something that uh Wandre or the Echo guys would make in the 60s, right, like that kind of a a European aesthetic where it's not like an American guitar. It's something that they're, they're looking at what the Americans are doing going, hey, we can do it this way. And, you know, all, everything about Italian guitars from that time period is pretty crazy. And I, I, I love it. I really think it's great. So that's my homage to what those guys were doing, um, you know, in, in Europe in the sixties. So it's got a sparkly top. Um, it's pretty flashy looking. There's lights on the thing with buttons. And, uh, you know, I, yeah, it's just something I want to do.
1: So is it now all based on what your customer says, can you make this? Like other times when you get an idea for a guitar and you just go ahead and make it? I mean, it's it sounds like that's not possible because well, it's, you have it's such a long commitment.
0: Yeah, now I've got orders in front of me constantly. So I'm trying to slow that down a bit so I have a bit more time to develop things that I want to do that I haven't had time to do. Uh, I've got a guitar coming up to make uh, for a show in pennsylvania harrisburg pa um called the artisan guitar show and uh it's in april so I, i'm going to be building a guitar that i've never made before it'll be the same shape as my electric but bigger hollow but with a carved top and um and i'm going to try some different things on that so that's an experiment that i'm pretty sure will work well i'm not too worried about that it's just a, i want to i want to do it and realize it for this show and um i have I have a dealer called uh, CR guitarist, Craig Snyder, great guy. And he's been selling my guitars for about 13 or more years now. Um, it's, it's a little difficult to deal with dealers too. At, at this point for me, because I get all my orders are direct now. So I'll get someone that wants to talk to me directly about building them a guitar. And I'm fine with that. Uh, I still send Craig stuff. In fact, this guitar that I'm building coming up, will go to him. Uh, I think he's going to meet me at the show and he'll take it back with him and hopefully he'll demo it for me. He's a good musician.
1: Tell me about the attachment that you have towards your instrument. Like when you give it to him to sell or when you sell it to one of your clients, what is that feeling like for you?
0: Well, it's, um, <laughs> they're all kids, right? They're all your children. So sometimes it's hard to let them go. Um, some I wish I could keep, but at the end of the day, this is what I do for a living. So, the commerce part of it takes over. And I, you know, I let it go, get the money for it, build more stuff. Um, yeah. I get attached to them like any builder would. I think you, cause it's a real personal thing. I mean, you work on something for, for a month at a time and it's, it's pretty intense, you know, the whole process and I do everything too. I do all my, you know, aside from making all the hardware on the guitar and parts, I do all the spray finishing too. So I do everything here. Um, and I have my hands on all of those processes. So I wear all of the hats. So I get pretty involved with every instrument I make. Um, And I like everything I make because originally, mostly I made them for myself anyway, based on my interest in music and what I was listening to when I was younger and continue to listen to. I, you know, there's all sorts of things out there. that are Great music wise. I mean, it's it's just so open. And um, I can't imagine just making one thing. I know a lot of people concentrate on flat tops or, just electrics or just bass guitars. But for me, when I listen to music, I, I, wow, I, I just want to make stuff like, like I'm hearing. And I think that's part of it. That's, you know, it's sort of a blessing and a curse. The, the blessing part is that I get to make a lot of different things that are really interesting. Um, the curse is that <laughs> I don't have a setup that allows me to do it quicker. So I really have to do them all by hand. And like I said earlier, I have to retrain myself every time. I had one interesting experience years ago. Um, I was invited by a friend of mine, John Zosky, who's a great musician. And he, um, he was curating a show at the uh, AGO, and it was about musical instruments, mostly non-traditional music instruments like <laughs> chair backs with strings and, and sensors and pickups. Uh, I think one of John's pieces was you walk into a room, and the whole room reacted with people moving around in it, et cetera, and created sound but he liked my instruments and he asked if I could, um, put a couple of things in. So I had, I just happened to have a mandocello, electric mandocello, and a mandolin. And uh, I submitted those and they were hanging on the wall in the show. And it was the opening night was great. There was a, a guy there from the States. His name was Elliot Sharp, really great musician. And, uh, he liked what he saw and he asked, uh, John, if he can, intro, you know, for an introduction. So we talked and I gave Elliot a card and, um, About three weeks later, I got a call from this woman, Jin Hee Kim, um, and she asked me if I could build a kamungo. I didn't even know what a kamungo was. Um, So she said, I I play a a kamungo, and she described this thing. um, And I did some research and found out it's this crazy long six-foot Korean instrument that goes back probably almost 2,000 years. Probably started as a half hollow log, really, with strings on it. And um, she wanted... um, uh, a shorter version that she could carry onto a plane, et cetera, and take with her and more strings. So I met her at the uh, music gallery in Toronto and um, took tons of photos of this thing, talked to her for hours, measured her instrument, went back. She went back to the States and um, I'm building this Camongo that I had no idea about. So I started designing it and building it. And um, kind of, I kind of got it after a while what it was Uh, even though it was totally foreign and it had frets about three inches high down to about half an inch. And you play it overhand. Uh, You pluck it, push down on the strings as you're plucking it with like a bamboo stick on the other end. Kind of like a Japanese koto, I guess, that idea. But you can actually fret this thing. And um, so it had sympathetic strings with movable saddles. So I got to make all these parts, and uh, it was fascinating. And I... I, She wanted it electronic, too, because she wanted to play it through her computer and a sound system to alter the the sound, the signal. So I found these sensors. um, They were designed for earthquake sensing. And I bought two of these tiny little things, kind of a piezo element, but I don't know what else it was. But I found the sweet spot inside and stuck two of these in there, and it worked. And I had a little sound system in my shop. I plugged it in. And I could, I could hear stuff coming out of it. I'm trying to play it, and I had no idea what to do with this thing. I thought, oh, my God, I totally screwed it up. And I'm going to pick her up at the airport in about two hours at Pearson, bring her back to my shop to get the instrument so she could take it with her. And I was sweating bullets because I thought I totally screwed this. I had no idea what I was doing with this. And uh, so I'm trying to play it, and I couldn't make any sense of it. So I pick her up, take her to, the, to my shop. We plug it into the sound system, and she just starts playing this thing. I had it tuned up the way she wanted, and she was just making music with it immediately, playing it. She said, oh, this is great. And I was like, oh, my God. And, you know, I, I sat down. And I thought, oh, thank God this, this worked. <laughs> I was truly freaked out. I mean, I, I thought I messed it up big time. So that was fun. So it's the only electric komungo in the whole world, apparently, and she plays it all over the place. And uh, there's lots of video. of her. She yeah. plays kind of outside stuff. She's not playing traditional Korean music on it. She plays with um, the Kronos Quartet and Henry Kaiser and all sorts of people have played with Jinny Kim doing fairly experimental music, really. And um, that's what she uses it for. And uh, it's-,
1: it's, it's crazy that you could build things that you, you know nothing about. Well, <laughs> I mean, I know you do your research, but yeah, well, you know, like before she contacted you, you had no idea what this no, thing was. I, I'd
0: never heard of her or the the instrument at all. But you know, based on Elliot Sharp saying Joe can make this for you, which was really nice of him to do. Actually, I was that was a bonus. And uh, I mean, I was petrified, but sort of really excited at the same time. I, I wanted to dig right into this thing, and it took me a long time to make it. And um, when I got it, I even made the case for it. I made this huge case and lined it. In, and you know plush uh, crushed velvet and i made this little stand because it was so big she had to sit down with a foot controller for the computer hold it on her lap and usually you play these things on the floor but this thing was kind of ungainly it was big and wide so i made her a little folding stand with a leather slung top on it so that folded up and fit underneath the in the guitar case so i made all of this stuff for this thing very specifically um and it, it was fun it was a great project i i do more of that kind of thing you know it's it's really not easy to do but it really gets you going and and takes you to places that you didn't know existed you know I had no idea about this so when I designed it I just I just dove into it and, and figured it out and designed all the parts for it that ended up working really really well it was kind of lucky in a way
1: um i I wonder you mentioned this a little a little while ago about a little accident that you had yeah. Um, and I remember when that happened because I think people were quite concerned and I think there was rumors that maybe your guitar making days were over and whatever. <laughs> Tell me about that, what that incident did to you, for you, how it affected you.
0: Um, well, I was just about, it was about four days before my 60th birthday. I just moved out here um, maybe five months prior to that, where I am now in Waynefleet. I'm close to Lake Erie, hour and a half from Toronto. I'm in this big old post and beam building built in 1887 and uh, best shop I've ever had. It's, it's totally inspiring. Set all my machines up and um, I was building the first batch of guitars because I hadn't had any income for quite a while. So, you know, I was getting a little concerned. I, um, I needed to start making money. So I was working on three or four instruments and, and one day I just came into the shop and I was, I guess I was distracted. I mean, those kind of accidents, happen really easily if you're not paying attention. And I've been doing, you know, woodworking for so long. I've been using machineries, you know, for 40, almost 50 years. And, um, and 10 years ago, this happened. Um, right away, uh, I think I saw a for sale sign on my front lawn. I just moved here and I thought, how am I gonna do this? Uh, you know, I cut my finger off and part of my thumb. Uh, I was in shock. I'm out in the middle of nowhere. I ran over across the street to my neighbor's house he wasn't home. He's always there. So I ended up driving myself to the hospital. And all the way there, I'm thinking, I won't be building guitars anymore. I remember thinking that this is the end of it for me. I, how can I do this anymore? Um, but, you know, after <laughs> after the shock element and I settled into to figuring out how I could do this, I just started to work again. In fact, I had a, um, a friend of mine, was someone I just met, was building a guitar under my tutelage in my shop. And this happened not when he was here, but um, during the time he was building his guitar. And um, so, Mike, I I called him up and I said, hey, Mike, I had a bit of an accident. I I don't know if I can, We can do the lesson this week. And I told him what happened. And he was like, oh, my God. He came right over. You know, it was all my friends kind of circled the wagons around me. It was really nice. They did a huge benefit at Hughes room and raised some money for me so I could continue until I recovered. You know, I had a long time. I had all summer. It was funny because uh, I... I'd never had a summer off since I was a kid. So here I'm all bandaged up and I'm down at the beach reading a book and just looking out yeah. at Lake Erie cause I couldn't work. So I had a lot of time to think about it. And, um, and I realized that yeah, I can do this. It's going to hurt, but I've got to do That's This is what I do for a living. What am I going to do otherwise? You know? So I just kind of got back in the saddle and, and started building it. I finished those instruments off and, uh, I had a bit of help making hardware from a friend of mine and, um, because I couldn't really hold a file very well, so there were things I couldn't do yet. But eventually, that all went away, and uh, and I got to using the tools and just my right hand. Um, it's funny because my right hand—I'm right-handed, so I always say that my right hand has a PhD and my left hand dropped out of high school. Basically, you know, that's the skill level of both hands. That's sort of not true, but that's that's how skilled I am with my right hand. That my right hand is everything to me. So when I lost my index finger and part of that thumb, it was um, it was kind of frightening. But now, everything's good. You know, I've just learned different ways to, to use my hands, and, and I can do it again.
1: I, I think you've answered this already, but after all this time, what continues to inspire you to do what you do? Oh,
0: just making things. Um, I love making things. You know, you start with an idea, and at the end of the idea, you've got this thing in front of you that has a life of its own, and you're going to hand it off to someone else. That applies to furniture, too, you know, and, It doesn't matter anything you make that someone else is going to use and enjoy. That's so fulfilling for me. So just the thought of building something that somebody's really excited about. I've got a lot of repeat customers at this point. Like a lot of people have two, three, five instruments, four instruments. Kevin's got 10. Um, Yeah, it's just when they come back for another round of this, it's exciting. It's exhilarating. So it's partly the friendship aspect of it getting to know people through music and through the instruments and what they do and what I do, you know, it's a real big community. And I'm not coming really from that community, like, like, uh, grit, Linda, David, other people too. They, they all kind of grew up together doing this. I, I didn't have that. I had furniture folks and people like that. I mean, I worked for Holt Renfrew and the Four Seasons and I had big contracts when I was a furniture maker. I was a whole other world. So doing the instrument thing is great because Guitar players are, are the more generous, They're more fun. You know, When you're dealing with a planning department, they just want something on time, you know, within this budget. End of story. You, you have to do that or there's litigation. So it's always nice to not have that hanging over your head and, and getting into knowing someone through what you're doing and what they do as well. That's a really big part of it for me and continues to be. It's, it's exciting.
1: I presume it's a very solitary thing to do. I, I, I get the feeling that you, you work with other people or you, you mentor people, but mm-hmm. when all is said and done, when you're creating these guitars, I, I presume you're spending a lot of time on your own.
0: Oh, tons, yeah. Mostly on my own. Yeah.
1: And how do you, what goes through your mind? Is it all about the build or what happens in those solitary moments?
0: Well, you know, it's such an exciting thing to, to build things. And some of it is boring. You know, sanding wood's not much fun, but you kind of get into this, I don't even know how to describe this. It, it's When I'm doing something, I'm thinking about the next step. I'm thinking about how I'm going to reconcile this detail, how I'm going to do this, how I'm going to do that. Then I jump up to the spray booth, and I'm thinking about how I'm going to spray it, what colors I'm going to use. So there's so many things to think about all the time. I don't really have time to be, to be bored, honestly. Uh, and because I make a lot of different instruments, as I mentioned before, I'm constantly thinking about what I did before to make this work this time, you know? So retraining is part of my deal. I don't rely on all my jigs and fixtures. I have to actually really dig in and think about what this means and what it's going to be and how I'm going to change this for this customer. You know, the scale length um, thing, the the neck shapes, everything, the radius of the fingerboard, how you do this, where all the hardware is placed on the instrument. It's all a big deal. So when I'm doing it, I'm doing it by hand and laying it out with a pencil and a ruler. I have jigs for certain things, but oftentimes um, you know, someone wants to switch down here and I just drill it. I don't have jigs for all that, so I mark it out and drill it and be careful doing it. So it's all hands-on and thinking about what I'm doing at the time. I'm not hitting the button and the machine's doing some work that I'm going to take off the machine later. That's all cool, too. Um, sometimes I wish I had that. One of my favorite things is uh, net carving. I'm, I'm pretty fast at it. I've carved so many necks now that I just get into this this rhythm of, of doing it. And, you know, with the micrometer and all of the numbers I have to work with, I can get that right down to what it has to be, the neck shape. And you get asked for a lot of different things like compound shapes, um, asymmetrical shapes, a D shape, a C shape, a V shape, hard V, soft V. There's all sorts of different ways to carve a neck. And when we're when I'm talking to a customer about this stuff, I get the picture of what they want based on what they're telling me too. And I'll make some suggestions and, and away we go. You know, it's yeah, there's no time to be bored, really.
1: When when you're building this an instrument for a musician, is there interaction in between or do they see the instrument before the very end? Or is, is, the, yeah. is the very end the first time they see it?
0: The beauty of uh, of uh, cameras and iPhones, etc. is these things are fantastic for me. So every other builder would agree with this too. Oftentimes uh, customers will want progress shots. So I'll have the body without the top. I'll take some shots send that. Um, so every step of the way, I kind of send photos. Sometimes dozens of photos go out, you know, before the instrument is finished. And then when I finish the instrument, I, I usually use my iPhone these days because it's much easier and the quality the iPhone is fantastic, like the cameras on those things is amazing. So you can do a lot. And, you know, with Instagram and uh, Facebook and other social media, it's it's great to post things. Um, That helps a lot, too. Like the whole notion of social media is something that I didn't start with. Anybody my age building will agree with this. It's like, wow, there was nothing before. You'd mail things out. You'd uh, make a phone call, uh, write some letters. I did tons of that. Uh, when the computer came in, email was great, though, because you know even that without photos was just wonderful to be able to back and forth. And now with, uh, with the technology we have, it's so easy to, to communicate with people. So I can send photos around the world, and, and they can see what I'm doing on my bench pretty much right now. It's great.
1: So how many different projects are you currently working on? How many different instruments are there in that building right now?
0: Uh, right now I've got uh, the arch top. I've got a flat top. And I've got a couple of electrics that I'm working on right now. Um, I try not to get too much going at once. Uh, I rarely build just one instrument. It's usually minimum two, often about three or four in a batch. Uh, It speeds things up a little bit, especially in the spray booth, because when you're shooting on lacquer and sealer and your grain filling, it's good to do it all at once, really. And I try and get it to that point. I just finished a batch of five instruments, electric, all of them. And they're all radically different. One of them was for Kevin, and it was, um, I call it the washi paper guitar series. So it's basically Japanese washi paper from the Japanese paper place in Toronto. Um, One day I I was sitting here, this is before Kevin got his, I had this idea of making another series like I did with the Milanos. Because it's fun to do things in a series, because you can take this block of X number of instruments and make them similar. They all relate, they're all kind of related, and it's separate from all the other stuff I do as well. So I was looking to maybe turn one of my electric guitars into what, you know, Fender did in the 60s, do a Paisley-style instrument. They used wallpaper, Paisley wallpaper, glued it on the top and um, and lacquered over it, clear lacquer. There it was. So I really liked that idea. I thought, well, I'll make a, a zello that's got Paisley on it. So I'm looking around for Paisley wallpaper and coming up dry, and I thought, oh, I wonder if the Japanese paper place has any. So I'm online on their website and all of this stuff pops up and all of a sudden I had this idea to do this series with this Japanese washi paper. And uh, and it's happening now. i built uh, two of them only, but I've got I've got a whole stack of this paper that I'm just excited to get into using. But this is where, you know, I have, I have to get an order for one or I have to build one on spec and then sell it myself or send it to Crane or whatever. Um, and there's too much else to do right now. So sometimes I'm, waiting for a little space to build something that I want to build, right? Instead of building something that someone's asking me to build, which is fine, too, because they're all my guitars at the end of the day. But taking the time now to do things on spec is a little harder. But, um, yeah, when I did that Japanese paper one, Kevin was pretty excited about it, and uh, he ended up ordering one. So one of the last batch I did had his guitar in.
1: So speaking of Kevin, because I did ask him about you, and I said, what is it that makes... Your guitar is so great to him. I know like, Why does he love your guitar so much? And the first thing he said was that, that it's so reliable. That he knows that it's going to be in tune. Yeah. He can go all over the world and he'll travel and it'll be on planes and whatever. He'll get on stage and then it's in tune. Like as soon as he takes it out and that all the pieces are there. It's really well built. If I was to ask you what makes your guitar is what it is, How would you describe that?
0: Um, Well, aesthetically, they're all mine. Like what I've come up with design-wise is no one else's but mine. Just like Kevin's playing is his playing. It's identifiable. And I think my guitars are pretty identifiable that way. The quality thing is important. Um, And I think that's what Kevin responds to as well, because he's truly using these things as tools. More than any other player I know, he needs something because it does this. He's got so many different instruments, and and I get it with him, too. And, you know, the, the funny thing about Kevin and many other great players, as soon as they play a note or two on any instrument, you know it's them. There's many players, Jeff Becks, like that. There's so many players that fall into that category. Django Reinhardt, Pat uh, Maffini, Julian Lage, um, so many players. And, uh, and Kevin's definitely there, too. So, whatever he plays he's going to sound good on and he's I think he's exaggerating about them not <laughs> being out of tune I think sure they go out of tune everything goes out of tune. I mean it's really nice of him to say that but I get where he's going with it is he can rely on them. Uh, and when you're on stage with an instrument that's not reliable it's frightening because this is how you're making your it could be a, a room of a thousand people or or 10 people at Grossman's it doesn't matter you know you're you have to be up there and perform. People are there to see you perform. So it is a big deal. So that that is important. The whole mechanical aspect of a guitar is as important as anything. So I try and do the whole thing and make them work really well and make them look good and feel good. I mean, it's a big package, right? Um, that's it, really. I don't know what else I could say about, about
1: that. My final question to you is... That person who said, I'm going to go out and make my own guitars and do this full time mm. to where you are today. Is this, could you have imagined that you would be here? I, I presume you could, but is this where you wanted to be? Is this, does any of the journey surprise you?
0: Um, not really. Uh, I'm a real slow burner. I, I mean, I, I didn't dive into the deep end at all. I had my cabinet job, which paid really well. And uh, once I I got, I kind of got tired of building cabinets. It was getting, I'm, you know, I was getting older and it was hard work and I didn't have a huge shop. I had a few people that I would do bigger jobs with. I'd hire people to help me in the shop. When I got into the guitar thing, um, it was truly because I love music and I like musical instruments and I like building that, you know, it, it covers so much territory for me. It's a functional piece of art is what it is for me. And furniture is to a lesser degree I mean you, a chair you can sit on it but it doesn't really do anything else the guitar is part of your identity really especially guitars and musical instruments of that nature less so with pianos and and, uh, and drums and keyboards you know but a guitar is a sexy thing right and that's what I've tried to maintain that that aspect of it is exciting and it's it becomes everything the player can use it as a tool. It's uh, identifiable uh, for the audience. It's part of them. A good example of that is Jimi Hendrix, really, with the Stratocaster. I mean, that guitar is part of him. Like, it, physically, it's attached to him in so many ways. And, uh, and I like that aspect of the musical instrument, that it's part of this person that's using it to make music. And Kevin does it really well, and many other people do too. So I think that's a real big thing for me, you know, is to have that aspect.
1: Well put. Um, Joseph, it's been a real pleasure getting to know you and thank you so much for taking this time. Uh, My pleasure.
0: Thank you.